0: Good morning. good morning. It's as always good to be here to open up the Word of God. And we are going to be looking at the Word of God. Look to the Lamb of God, for He alone is able to save you. Look to the Lamb of God. You know, many ascend up here to the to the platform, this two steps, not to be elevated, but I suppose to speak better, but Never look to the man on the platform. I hope you don't look to me and I hope I'm not speaking this morning. We come to proclaim the Word of God. That's where truth is, that's where wisdom comes from, it flows from God to us through His Word. Now having said all that, I'm going to give a very earthly phrase for a title of this message. Pay me now or pay me later. But it has a very um, spiritual application to our lifetime. And that's not a question, it's a, it's a statement. You can pay me now or pay me later, and we infer from that that it's going to be a greater cost later. And we're going to see in our message that, in fact, is true. And I I want to give thanks to our Lord, uh, to our God, our Father, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the worship service this morning, much of what I'm going to talk about was covered. And what a blessing that we can come together and worship the one who is able to save us. A subtitle might be, Are There Consequences in the Next Life? And with the eternity that God has set in our hearts, we know this is true. Let's turn uh, to that passage our brother read this morning in Luke chapter 19. And we're gonna uh, try to dig deep and see what the Lord has to speak to us. And while you're turning there, I'll quote a couple of verses speaking of looking. God tells us in Isaiah 45:22, look unto me all ye ends of the earth and be ye saved for I am God and there is none else. You know, Jesus said something similar to His disciples and, and through them also to us. In John chapter 14, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father unto the Father, except by me. Now, if those two statements are true, it, it removes all mystery about where we need to look for eternal peace. And my definition of peace is It is a confident knowledge of well-being, and it's not just temporal, but eternal. Underneath are the everlasting arms, we're told in Deuteronomy 33. We have security in the one who was promised to bring us safely home. As we mentioned in the worship service this morning, dear brother, a new and living way has been opened unto us into the very presence of God. We're told the veil was torn. That is his torn flesh, and the forerunner is entered into the presence of God and will bring us to him. At the completion of time. Well, we don't want to look to mankind or earth, uh, philosophy, if you will, of the earth, uh, worldly principles. We want to look again unto a God. Why the title, Pay Me Now or Pay Me Later? And I was thinking of that passage in Philippians too. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee be they in heaven or on the earth and even under the earth, shall bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that's an, a statement. It's an imperative. It's going to come to pass. Blatant in that message is we can, we can willingly bow our knee and with our tongue confess Jesus as Lord now in this life but if we wait till the next life, we'll be compelled to do it. I see that at the great white throne judgment and those who acknowledge Jesus as Lord there are about to be cast into the lake of fire. So we want to avoid that. Well, let's look at this passage in Luke 19. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, starting with verse 28, moving to 29. When he approached, Bethphagy and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Father, we do pray that we would, with open hearts, receive this wisdom in its depth, an infinite, eternal meaning, that we might grow according to your will. We know you've promised your word will not go out and return again void without accomplishing what you sent it forth. We pray that we would act upon what we hear, that we would be productive. In all things we do, we seek to bring glory to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose names we give thanks. Amen. Well, let's look at this triumphal entry, as it's called, a little more deeply and and see what it reveals. We'll see that, yes, it is the uh, record of the event of his entrance into Jerusalem a few days before his crucifixion and then his resurrection, we'll see that it's a fulfillment of prophecies in a very precise and um, in, in detailed manner, the details and the consequences that we're told of in this passage should call us to account that we are accountable to God for what he reveals to us. Prophecy is more than just prediction and fulfillment as we see it. It is that indeed, but it is more. It is always establishes a pattern. As the Jews looked at they would look for these patterns, for it details how God deals with mankind in his unchangeable, immutable nature throughout all of recorded history. It's always been about believing God and having faith. And it shows us how he deals with mankind. And finally, we're going to see that this this event is a manifestation of a parable which he had just told them. Let's turn to Daniel 9 and we'll read one of the prophecies about this event and as we do that I'll remind you that this prophecy is given to us that we don't follow in blind faith. God gives us reason to believe what he says. As Jabe Nicholson would quip, look, God's the one who made your brain. He doesn't want you to throw it away. You are to use it. But we are to listen to God and his truth, and from there, with the wisdom he gives us, we arrive at the right uh, understanding. God in, in Isaiah 46 says, I, I, I know the end from the beginning. He's revealing it to us. Jesus said, I tell you these things before they happen, so that when they do come about, you'll know that I am he. Daniel chapter 9, We're starting with verse 24. We're going to speak here about weeks, and the Hebrew word is shabuah. It means sevens. Uh, And I don't want to spend a lot of time. I'm short on time this morning. If you'll allow me, uh, I'm going to read this as years. In the 70 weeks that are determined, it's really saying 490 years. I'll give you um, where I'm coming from with that and tell you where you can go to do a little more study. But I agree with the theologians who have looked at this. And with many Jews down through the centuries who have come to a saving knowledge in Yahushua, Jesus, Jesus, by reading this prophecy and realizing Messiah has already come, this will give us the date that the entry into Jerusalem was made by Messiah. 490 years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now, why would I say years? Well, if you go back to the beginning of this chapter, Daniel, in reading Jeremiah, realizes that the captivity of the Israelites in Babylon was 70 years. And he begins to confess his sins and the sins of Jerusalem, Judea, and all the Israelites who've been scattered throughout the world because of their disobedience to God in accordance with uh, Scripture, which said that would happen if they were disobedient. And he's, he's saying, Hosanna. He's saying, save now. And God hears his prayer and sends Gabriel. And Gabriel comes to him and says, I'm going to tell you so that you understand. And he, Gabriel is speaking these words. He's going to tell him, Seventy years you were in captivity. There's going to be another 70 times that before Messiah comes. Seven times that. He's going to say, 490 years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now, I read that passage that, that speaks of what Jesus did when he came into Jerusalem, the suffering servant Messiah giving his life in make um, making reconciliation for iniquity. Gabriel continues, and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy, or holy of holies. I see this the completion of the prophecy of four hundred and ninety years, but that's future yet, in that which occurs afterwards in the millennial reign of Christ. Gabriel continues, "Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the prince when he comes shall be 49 years and 434 years. He says, "Then the street shall be rebuilt and the wall even in troublous times." Well he's given us there a total of 483 years. It's seven years short of the full 490. The seven years, the the first seven weeks, or the 49 years, I believe, is uh, attended to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in the building of the walls in troublous times as they were opposed by those living uh, in and around Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah says as much in his second chapter. He talks about the streets and walls being built up. And the only commandment that ever went out was made by Artaxerxes I. And if we take the start date from that and go forward this 483 years, we arrive at this exact day when Messiah rides into Jerusalem. It continues on here, Gabriel saying, And after threescore and two weeks, this is after the 49 years have been completed, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. That was a a partial first time fulfillment of this when Israel was destroyed in 70 AD, but it has future application as well. Because we see in verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week or seven years. So here we have the seven years added to the 483 to bring about the fullness, the completion of the 490 years that Gabriel began with. And in the midst of the week, the seven years, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. And that determined, this desolations, shall be poured out upon the desolate. Now, if you want to dig deeper into this, we could spend several messages talking about it, as others have described Sir Robert Anderson's masterful work the coming prince. He details this. And in more recent years, Dr. Harold Hayner has taken that and they disagree perhaps on the exact start date, but it's amazing they both end at the entry of Jesus, the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. And we're going to see that Jesus holds the Jews accountable, that they should have known the very date. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about this prophecy and the desolation and refers to Daniel. Well, let's go back to Luke 19, and while you're doing that, I'll read one more prophecy just quickly out of Zechariah 9 while you're turning to Luke 19. And it describes the manner in which Messiah will enter, on what animal he rides, and what the behavior of the crowd will be. Zechariah 9, verse 9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon a donkey." And upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's coming in as a servant. In Luke chapter 19, going back to verse 28, it says, When he had said this, and I can hear Vernon McGee saying, Whenever you see therefore, you need to figure out what therefore is there for, because it's tying to something. And here, when he had said this, what he's tying it to is a parable he had just told about a nobleman who's going to. Go off to a distant land to receive his kingdom. But before he goes, he calls in ten of his own servants, and he gives them each ten minas. Now, a mina was about 100 days' wages, so he gives them each 1,000 days' worth of wages in which he instructs them. Put it to work so I have gain from it when I return. But there's another group. They send a delegation after him saying, We will not have this man to rule over us. They, They reject him as their coming king. The parable ends, of course, with him returning as king. He calls his servants to account. We have just a sampling of the servants, three of them, two faithful and one unfaithful. There's talk of reward and, and rebuke for those who are his servants. I don't think it's a picture of the lost, but what about those who rejected him as king? He said, bring them and slay them in my presence. Those who rejected him as king were slain. We're even told why he tells them this parable in uh, Luke 19, verse 11. And as they heard these things, okay, so, so here we go again. What things? They had just heard about the man of small stature, Zacchaeus, coming to salvation to his house, who, this dishonest tax collector who had uh, repented. And Jesus finishes that section with saying, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So he continues on here. After, as they had heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh unto Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. See, they were thinking that Messiah was going up to Jerusalem to receive his kingdom, coming as conquering Messiah. The, the parable probably didn't help all that much. You could see it in the mind's eye of the disciples. He just told us a parable about a nobleman returning to receive his kingdom. And we're going to Jerusalem. He's going to be made king. He's going to throw off the yoke of the Romans. Well, Jesus continues in verse 29. And it came to pass when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany. Now, nothing in scripture is incidental or accidental. What do the names mean? Bethphage means house of unripe figs. And Bethany means house of many figs. There are some who argue it means house of pain or house of suffering. but I think Bethphagy, unripe figs, Bethany, many figs. Again, in accordance with the parable, we're being told to be fruitful. The fig tree is a symbol of Israel and their prosperity when they're obedient. First Kings 4, it talks about every man will have his own vine and his own fig tree. And if we look at the, the accounts in in Matthew and Mark, we're told of a fig tree, and Scripture tells us it's not really the fault of the tree. It's not the season for figs. But God is, through His Son, is going to give us an example, again, that we should be fruitful. He sees a fig tree. There's no fruit on it. He curses it. The next time they pass by, it's withered from the roots up. We're supposed to be fruitful. Again, all this is in keeping with the symbolism in this truth, this pattern of how God deals with mankind. Continuing on with verse 29, it says, and they, and they were near the mount that is called Olivet. Again, that's, that's not a mistake or, a, or not a mistake. It's not even um, something that's inconsequential. There's great meaning here as well. It's a mount of olives. It bore much fruit, olive trees, which give forth their wonderful oil. He's going to spend time there in this coming week, particularly we know in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed. The very name Garden of Gethsemane means a garden of the olive press. You put an olives on an olive press and squeeze it to squeeze out the the bountiful blessing of its oil. Is it a stretch for us to imagine Jesus Christ praying on one of those wine, one of those olive presses and under the pressure he was under, knowing what he's about to face, being having the the filth of the world, the sins of mankind dumped upon him, the wrath of God, and giving up his life? That we're told that under great pressure that um, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. The Mount of Olives is important for another reason as well. The prophecy in Zechariah 14 is that the conquering Messiah is going to return when he sets up his kingdom in a light on the Mount of Olives. It'll split open and his throne will be established. So here we have this multitude going up with the man they realize worked all these miracles, a man of God. He's coming to receive a kingdom. They get near the Mount of Olives. They're getting pretty excited. Jesus, knowing this, is the reason he told the parable, and now he's going to do some other things that ought to put them on the right path that he's coming as a suffering servant. He sends them into the village, as we're told in the remainder of verse 29, all the way through 35, to borrow a donkey, which was, as our brother pointed out, was fairly common. But normally they'd choose a horse or a stallion to speak to their nobility, their high stature. But Jesus says, Bring me a donkey the symbol of humility and servanthood. You see, he was entering into into Jerusalem as a suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who was gonna bear our griefs. By the travail of his soul was gonna justify the many. Our transgressions were gonna be poured out upon him and by his stripes we were gonna be healed. But all they could see was the conquering son of David which is portrayed in Psalm 89. They were blinded by their desire in their preconceived notion about what manner, even those who recognized that this was Messiah, they were carrying the wrong picture and coming based on works rather than faith. Well, the crowds did show honor as our brother pointed out. They threw their cloaks down, much like we might roll out the red carpet. And they began to praise God as we're told in in verse 37 because of the mighty works they had seen. They were were mostly from Galilee and some from Jericho. They'd just seen Bartimaeus, the blind man, receive his sight. Matthew tells us there was a second man who received his his sight. They've seen all this works. If 37 tells us they were praising God, 38 tells us what they were saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In Matthew and Mark, we're told they're also saying, Hosanna, again, that means God, Save now. Save now, O oh God. They were looking for their release from the bonds of Rome. Now, it's not unusual for them to be singing this as they're entering Jerusalem, particularly on uh, for one of the holy feasts. All the roads would lead up to, to Jerusalem in the mountains. That's why it says they went up to Jerusalem. No matter what road they would go in, they would sing what is called the Song of Ascent, the Great Hallel, a praising of God, which is comprised of Psalm 113 through 118. And they were praising God for his salvation and the many ways in which it's manifested. In 113, it's that he saves even the lowliest person. In Psalm 114, he's praising that he saves the weak out from the power of the strong, like Egypt. I mean, Israel out of Egypt. And they're thinking he's going to save us out from the bonds of, of Rome. In 115, they give... Praise to God and recognize He, He's the only source of salvation. In one sixteen, He saves even from death. In one seventeen, His salvation flows to all nations. And finally, one eighteen, they're praising God for His salvation, which they know comes through Messiah. So, as they're entering Jerusalem, they're singing this out. But this crowd, they recognize her with a mighty man of God, Messiah. Now, as a freebie, as an aside, um, we have Psalm 117, which is the shortest chapter in the Bible. And we have Psalm 119, which is the longest. And right in between is Psalm 118. Now, in the the Bible, I tend to use for study and teaching is the New American Standard. The very middle verse in the Bible is Psalm 118.8. And what does it say? It says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And the very next verse is, it's is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And if we're putting our trust in man, if we're putting our trust in princes, I don't care whether it's political or even religious. If we're putting our faith in religious organizations and traditions and men, we're building on the wrong foundation. Well, they're expecting a king. They're praising him and... Again, the Pharisees call out and command him to to silence his disciples. And he says, no. He says, if they're silent, the stones will cry out. You know, throughout all his ministry, again, as our brother pointed out, the people he healed, the people he ministered to, the people he taught, even the demons, he commanded them, do not tell anybody who I am. And what was the reason? Because my time has not yet come. But his time has now come. This week is going to point to him as Messiah. He's going to hold Jerusalem and the Jews responsible because they did not know. As we read in verse 41 to 44, he wants repentance and obedience in them to recognize their Messiah. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your Peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. You no, know, Paul tells us, if you look at Romans 9, 10, and 11, it speaks about Israel. It talks how a partial blindness is set in. Why? They came to God in the works of the law. Yet by the deeds of the law there shall be no flesh justified in the sight, Romans 3.20 tells us. They came with works, good works. The Gentiles came in faith and were saved. And the Jews have been set aside in partial blindness. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. We might argue amongst ourselves on how um, easy it is to understand Daniel 9, but Jesus held them accountable, that they didn't recognize it, and he wept over them for their inability to see him for who he was. The question comes, what do you think about it? What do you think about Jesus? Who is Jesus? You know, as Christians living 2,000 years later, do we believe all that he's told us? Are we gonna be productive fig trees? And for those who don't know Jesus, what's gonna happen to them? It's easy to look back at them and and ridicule them. We have the benefit of all Scripture written since then, and Romans fifteen four tells us all Scripture is written beforehand is for our education. That through the the perseverance and the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. Hope for what? Eternal peace. Well, He came that first time. He suffered and bled and died, and was resurrected. You know, what what he says in Revelation 1, 17 and 18 is true. Our brother prayed it this morning. Behold, I, I was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. See, I have the keys to hell and death. He offers us eternal life if we look to the Lamb of God. Again, it's faith. It's always been faith. Romans chapter 4 points out that... It was faith. What, in, in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. It wasn't righteous because of the deeds. His deeds followed. We need to recognize that we're the ones who put Christ on the cross. I mentioned before, you know, in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, uh, there's, uh, I don't, it probably isn't violent enough. And I might disagree with some of the things that Mel Gibson believes, but he was very right in one thing he said. Somebody rebuked him, said, aren't you concerned about how this will be a rise to to anti-Semitism because of Jews putting Jesus on the cross? And he rebuked the interviewer and said, no. He says, I put Christ on the cross, and that is true. Romans 4.25 says, he was delivered up because of our transgressions, but he was resurrected because of our justification. In the very next verse, the first verse in Romans chapter 5, is therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Again, that's eternal peace. What a glorious thing to have. I marvel at, at people that walk through this world without the peace and the knowledge of their eternity. But are we living in a way which lends credence to that that it's a true belief within our heart let's turn to Revelation 19 and I'd ask are we really honestly actively looking for the second coming you know in the first coming um, according to the prophecy of Daniel they should know the exact day of his appearing we're not given that for his second appearing we're told no man can know the hour or the day yet we're supposed to know the season you know Jesus rebuked the Pharisees uh, in Matthew 16, he said, you look at the sky. And by the nature of what you see in the sky, you can discern what the weather is going to be, but you don't know the season. Essentially, you don't know that your Messiah is amongst you. He wants us to live expectantly like he could arrive at any moment before, the serp- before this very sentence is over, he could come. There's nothing left that needs to be done. So are we looking for the second coming of Christ? Now, I see it in two phases. I, believe, I do believe in a rapture. But there is going to be a second coming when Jesus comes to the earth. And the Jews thought he was coming as the military Messiah, the conquering Messiah, the first time around. His second appearing is going to be pretty close to what they were looking for. Let's read in Revelation 19, starting with verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, He himself treads a winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. The Lamb of God. Say he turns into an attack lamb. He's going to put away all iniquity, seal up the prophecy that Daniel has given us and bring in everlasting obedience. We get caught up in making lots of choices, and many of them are, are good or important, and we make them on faith. Some people say, I don't have faith. Of course you do. You have faith your paycheck is going to be good when it gets deposited in your account. You have faith in most of your decisions, and if they go wrong, you have faith that the aspirin you're going to take to cure those headaches is really aspirin. You have faith that your brakes work when you're approaching a stopped vehicle in front of you, or a red light. You have faith it's going to stop. And Some of us who are really foolish have faith that when we jump out of an airplane, our parachute's going to open. And you'll rightly point out that those things don't always come true. That's why it's important to make sure that what you're putting your faith in is worthy of you putting your faith in it. You know, we make lots of important decisions like choosing a spouse. That's an important decision. We're responsible to God to make a good one there. Choosing an occupation or buying a house. All these things are important, but they pale. They're absolutely meaningless in comparison to making the choices about eternity. Life is not a video game, it's not a reset button, you don't get a do-over. It's appointed of the man once to die and then the judgment. We have to get this right. You can't afford to make the eternal mistake. We don't want to be like those who sent the delegation after the nobleman, we, re- we refuse to have this man rule over us. What stands in our way of obtaining a favorable eternal outcome what is it that might cause us to suffer the wrath of Almighty God? Scripture makes it very clear there are is two places where all people are going to dwell, and one of those two places for all eternity. There are the pleasures of heaven. Psalm sixteen eleven says, In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand is pleasures evermore. The other place, a lake of fire, is going to be far too hot for any joy or pleasures. The short definition of heaven is that's wherever God is in the presence of the power of his glory. That's where we want to exist. And I would say that scripture points out we're going to receive bodies. You know, when I lay up this earthly tent, when it's rolled up and put away, there's, a, there's a, a body in heaven waiting for me, not made by human hands. It'll make me appropriate in my body to dwell in the presence of God. For those who are going to the lake of fire, they're going to be given a body which is appropriate for them to endure that wrath forever. Is hell really real and is it eternal? You know, John Walvoord asks a a question. He says, what does it say about human nature that a much higher percentage of people believe in the existence of heaven than do believe in the existence of hell? (laughs) He said, nobody likes to talk about this, about eternal damnation, about hell, the lake of fire. The same book that gives us heaven also gives us hell. Jesus talked more about hell than heaven because he didn't want anybody to go there. There's a huge amount of description of what it's like. Jesus talks about it being eternal fire, unquenchable fire, uh, where the fire is not quenched, torment and fire. You know, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writes about what it's like and, and why those who go there go to the lake of fire. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. They reject the simple gospel of all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He who hath the Son hath life. Believe. You know, he's saying, hath everlasting life. John 5, 24, he says, if you hear my words and believe him who sent me, you'll have everlasting life. You'll not commit the judgment, but have already passed from death into life. We already possess it. We have it in the past tense. Completed, perfect, A.R.S. tense in Romans, verse 30. Those who've been called have been justified. Those who've been justified have been glorified. Some people say, well, that eternal destruction mentioned there in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 means, well, it's just annihilation. No. In in Revelation chapter 14, we're told the smoke of the torment rises forever and ever. In Revelation chapter 20, it says, not just the smoke, they will suffer. It describes a lake of burning sulfur where the wicked are tormented day and night forever and ever. You say, that doesn't seem fair. Well, as David points out in Psalm 51, all our sin is against God, ultimately. We might sin against one another, but ultimately it's against God. God is infinite, and God is eternal. The punishment for rejecting the salvation he freely gives us will be, um, it'll be eternal. It will be eternal, and it will be infinite beyond our ability to comprehend. It ought to be a fearful thing. Daniel says it's a place of shame and contempt. Utter forlorn. We'll have a recognition if we are so unfortunate as to go to hell, as to realize our position is irrevocable. We're therefore all eternity. How do we avoid it? The world is full of ideas. They look to, again, earthly philosophy. And they re- rely upon their own thoughts and their own logic Instead of going, again, as we said at the beginning, for the wisdom which God can give us and the truth which comes through scripture, they'll make claims like, well, good people go to heaven, when in fact, just the opposite is true. Good people can't go to heaven, but bad people can. And there's a very simple reason. because the Bible tells us, there aren't any good people. Heaven's gonna be filled with bad people who've been made good, been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. But good people can't go to heaven. There's none good but God. Others will throw in, well, to make up for the times you're not good, do some good works. And and in the scale, the balance, it'll be weighed. If your good, good works outweigh your bad works, you end up with this, you're justified in the eyes of God. You can get into heaven. But as has been pointed out before, you can't even do that down here in a court of law. How often do we hear it in the news about somebody who's just been an absolute wonderful citizen and they can't believe they committed this horrific crime. All their goodness doesn't count for anything. They still go to prison. You say, well, that's violent crime. Well, the same thing for a traffic ticket. It's still wrong. You can't trade good works for bad works down here, and you can't do it getting into heaven. God, He likes our good works, but he says, if you can employ your good works to be righteous before me, you'll be like the Jews. In Romans 11, he says, they come to me with the law By works. And yet it's by faith, like it was with Abraham. That's how it's reckoned unto us, as righteousness. He says, your righteous works look like filthy rags to me, in Isaiah 64.6. He wants us to be productive and do good works, but you can't do them until you're created in Christ Jesus, as Ephesians 2.10 puts it to us. Other people will say, well, you just make up for that by joining a religion, but they all just tell you the same. And religion, that's my denotation for the word religion is it's a man-made system that tries and seeks to reconcile us to God and it can't do it. Our arms are far too short to reach from here to heaven. No, it's God reaching down to us. And it is our sin that separates us, our imperfection. My imperfection can't dwell in the presence of God. I would die. It would impinge upon the beauty, the holiness, the perfectness of God if I were to dwell in his presence with my sin. And I can't make a go-if I was perfect from now to whenever I die, I still can't get rid of the sins from this morning, yesterday, or last week or last year. Only God can wash them away. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says there's wages to be paid for that. Now God's a perfect accountant. Every debt will be paid. The wages of sin is death. Gloriously, that verse goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God looks at me and says, Russ, he says, you're full of sin. You got no righteousness. But as hard as that, I would be redeemed. You know, he told the, the prophet Ezekiel that we belong to him, that he has the right to do with us as he will. In Ezekiel 18.4, he says, the soul that, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father and the Son. And he goes on to say that the soul that sins, that soul must die. But I believe it's the 23rd verse of that chapter. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In the 33rd chapter, he tells Ezekiel, tell them this. As surely as I liveth, saith the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants us to turn, repent, change our mind. And turn to him and be saved, as he said in Isaiah 45. Look unto me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. I am God and there is none else. He had Peter tell us in 2 Peter 3:9, I desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He had Paul write to Timothy and tell us, This is good and well-pleasing to God, our Savior, who wills all men to be saved. How can it happen? You know, Plato, writing to Socrates some five, six hundred years before the time of Christ, had it very insightful thinking about deity and righteousness and sin. He said Plato said, "It may be possible for deity to forgive sin, but I can't see how." He understood the conundrum: How could a righteous God forgive sin?" The simple answer is, he can't. And he doesn't. That may seem shocking, but we we always praise God for forgiving our sin. But God does not forgive sin. As I said, he's the perfect accountant. Every debt must be paid. And it just comes down to who's going to pay for it and how it's paid. It was mentioned this morning, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. I like the way it's put in the Young's literal translation because it juxtaposes purification by blood according to law and then according to grace. Hebrews 9.22, according to Young's Literal Translation, and with blood, almost all things are purified according to the law. We're not under the law. It continues on, and apart from blood shedding, forgiveness doth not come. The sin isn't forgiven. The one offering up the blood sacrifice, that obtains it. The sinner is forgiven. God looked at me and he said, Russ, you're full of sin and you have no righteousness. He said, behold, my son, Jesus, he's full of righteousness, he has no sin. He said, let's make a a trade. I'll take your sin, I'll take your sin, Russ, and I'll give it to Jesus, and I'll take his righteousness and give it to you. You can find that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin was made to become our sin that we might become his righteousness in God. It's an unfair trade, but it's a good deal. You can't get a better deal than that. In the aftermath, God looked at me and said, not guilty. I am guilty. I said, he's a perfect accountant. He knew where every one of my sins were hidden, and he picked up every single one of them and put them on Jesus Christ. Past, present, and future, all my sin was piled upon Jesus Christ. That horrible afternoon on the cross and put away I said God's a perfect accountant. He's also a perfectly honest accountant. When something has been paid, he will neither ask nor receive a second payment for what's already been paid for. And therefore, what it says in Romans 3.26 is true. Therefore, he can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The only catch is only Jesus can substitute for my sin and only Jesus can substitute from your sin I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except by me. If you'll just confess to God that you're a sinner, and that you need salvation, you deserve the death that is promised in Romans 6.23. But acknowledge the love of God, demonstrated through the gift of His Son, who died and was resurrected for our justification, that He paid for our sins. Let me finish with an analogy. Uh, I've used it before, but it's such a great analogy because it speaks to life and to that question, how long do you have? How long are you going to live? The illustration is one of skydiving, and I don't know that makes people a little nervous talking about something they think is insane or uh, instant death, and so I want to start this by saying, look, we have a perfect record in skydiving. Put your minds at ease. We always have ways of couching things, don't we, to, to make them palatable. I, I'm not joking. We do. We have, Seriously, we have a perfect record in skydiving, and it speaks to this scriptural principle. It is important you define what it is uh, you're proclaiming or making claims about. Our perfect record is this. Every single skydiver who's ever got out of the airplane has made it back to the earth. We have not left any skydivers in the air. The application, of course, is this. We come into this life flesh and blood, and we will not survive beyond this life in flesh and blood. If the Lord tarries in sending his son, each of us will die physically. We may disagree about everything I've been discussing this morning, but I'm pretty sure we'll all agree that one day we're all going to be dead, unless it's the intervention of the rapture that catches us up alive to ever be with the Lord, and hallelujah, what a, what a wonderful thing. Well, how does this fit the skydiving? Well, when a skydiver, at our drop zone, we normally get out about 13,500 feet. And it's been months since I've jumped. I don't think you can call me a skydiver anymore. I I'm, I'm almost feel earthbound. But we got about a minute, almost a minute of free fall that's, that you can uh, partake of when you get out at thirteen or 14,000 feet. But at some time, it's prudent to deploy your parachute, the canopy, to slow you down to a survivable descent rate. And the analogy isn't perfect, but it, it, it fits for what I'm going to finish with. Every once in a while, rarely, but every once in a while, something goes wrong with that parachute, and there's a malfunction, and it no longer can save your life. You are traveling at such a high rate of speed that uh, repatriation to the earth, that, that impact, that sudden stop, it's not going to be survivable. And an alarming trend has begun to develop in the last few years, and it's not amongst beginners or students. This is amongst experienced, good skydives. Good. They've done a lot of good works. We don't know why they do it, because they don't survive. But there's a malfunction of the parachute, the thing that they think can save their life, and they begin to work on it. We call it rigging in the air. Rigging is supposed to be done on the ground in preparation for the skydive. But these guys begin to work with that parachute, play with the suspension lines, and do whatever they can to try to make it work, and they work on it. They work on this thing that can't save them. They work, and they work, and they work for the rest of their lives on something that can't save them. This world is full of people that are working on their salvation by working on their works. Something that can't save them. And just like every skydive ends up with a skydiver back on the ground, so this life ends up with us passing into eternity. So I'd ask you again, do you know how long you're going to live? Do you know how much time you have? Do you know what's going to happen to you when you do die? If you don't know, it's not safe for you to die. Simple faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't come by a prayer. It doesn't come by baptism, communion, going to church, giving. All those are good things, and we should do them, but they don't save you. They'd be, more, they'd be the works that would come afterwards that would show that a change has taken place. If you don't know what's going to happen to you, let's talk. I'd, I'd love to spend some time talking to you. If you're listening to this later, I pray that the Lord would raise somebody up that can answer the question. Just don't put it off. How much time do you have? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the confident knowledge we can have that when you make a promise, you're not a man that you should lie, neither you the son of man that you would change your mind You have promised to bring us freely home into the glory of your presence. Again, we recognize your word does not return void. We pray that this will impact our lives, believers and unbelievers alike, that we would give forth fruit attendant uh, as worship for the one who gave his life for us, and that those whom the the Spirit is working upon their hearts, that they would come to a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we give thanks. Amen.